could turn the page and suddenly it was a story, boys and girls, about you. And there's a picture of you. And there's your mom and dad and your brothers and sisters. And the story goes on and, and just talks about, about your life. I think about how surprised you would be. Uh, well, that's the sort of the surprise we have in the book of Revelation as um, Jesus is, is painting these beautiful, broad, dramatic pictures of eternal things and spiritual things, but it's not about other people. Uh, it's, it's, it's about you. It's about us. It's about the church. And we see ourselves right here in the pages of Scripture. It's talking about us. And it's, uh, it's telling the story about our life and about the world that we live in. It's telling a story about a great battle, a great conflict that we are caught up into as those who belong uh, to Jesus Christ. And here in, in uh, chapters 12 through 14, we have this, this story of the epic battle of all battles, uh, the great conflict between God and the devil and the great victory accomplished in Jesus Christ. And, and that spiritual conflict, which is taking place is what lies behind all the conflicts in the world. And um, Abraham Kuyper, the uh, Dutch theologian and politician of the 19th century, he once wrote that if the curtain were pulled back and we could actually see the spiritual world, he says it would expose to our vision a struggle so intense, so convulsive, that the fiercest battle ever fought on earth would seem by comparison a mere game. Not here, but up there, that is where the real conflict is waged. Now, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, as we said, is pulling back this, the veil so that we can see things that we would never otherwise see. We would not know these things if Jesus hadn't explicitly told them to us. Uh, and what he shows us here is the reality of our context and, and things that explain why the world is the way it is, why uh, life is hard, why the church struggles. It shows us um, why the world hates Jesus. I mean, the evidence of that is, is, um, surrounds us. It's, it's, the, it's really the most amazing thing. If you, if you just think about the things that the world loves and who they gush over, uh, they go gaga over the Dalai Lama. They have deep respect for Confucius. They idolize music stars and actresses, uh, but um, they hang on every word, right, that they, the latest actress might say, but resist continually what Jesus says, what the living God, maker of heaven and earth, has to say. We get used to it, but it is stunning. It's surprising. Uh, next time you're at the grocery store, uh, uh, just take a moment to actually look at the magazines on the, the, the rack and marvel. People buy those things. They, really, they do. They're, they're not there just for display. People buy them, and then people read them. And they would never break open the Word of God. Now, why is that? Well, because there's this huge spiritual conflict going on. Why is the world opposed to Jesus? Why does the name Jesus Christ fall from the lips of the world so quickly and so easily as a cuss word, if they speak it at all? It's a cuss word. Why, why is Jesus and his truth banished from the public sphere? 
Why aren't you allowed to appeal to the Bible when you're having a debate in the, the public square? Why is the church persecuted? I mean, there are, there's no social group in the world that's more despised, more ostracized, persecuted and hated than those who say they love Jesus. Why? Because to a truly non-biased observer, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. And then more specifically, maybe more importantly, how are we as those who do follow Jesus, who say we love Jesus, how do we make our way in a world that is increasingly bold in its hatred of Christ and his church? How do we, how do we stand and endure and conquer? And that's the point of chapters 12 through 14. Now, let me just very quickly say, when I'm talking about the world, uh, we're talking about the principalities and powers of this dark, evil age. We're talking about people who've been caught up in the grip of Satan. That's, that's what's being shown to us here in chapters 12 through 14. Um, the world is the mission field. And yet we need to understand the mission field if we're going to engage it. We need to understand what's at stake. What, what are the powers that be that hold people in, uh, in it, the, the, their demonic grasp? And how are we to engage that for the glory of God and for the saving of his lost elect? Jesus is trying to help the church understand things and see things in truth as, as they truly are. And so when we come to chapters 12 and 13 and 14, uh, we're, we're presented now with this great cosmic conflict between Christ and the devil, and, and we see how the church is caught up into that. There are a lot of details here that, that are, are fascinating, and we could dive into them, but, but once again, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I want to see the big picture, and, and we need to remember that th this text is not given to us by Jesus to satisfy or arouse our curiosity. We're not meant to look and say, oh, that means that, and that means that, and that's interesting. Um, we're, Jesus is, is, is instructing us. He's equipping us, his church, in this context to stand, to endure, to conquer in the midst of a great cosmic battle. So Jesus shows us now this, this, this conflict telling, taking place. As I said, there's two visions here. The same story, uh, one from the perspective of earth as we see it unfold on earth, and then we see, we see the battle engaged in the heavens. And the first uh, thing to note is uh, a woman, a great sign. Uh, this is only the second time. This will be one of two times that John speaks of a great sign. This is significant. He wants us to see this. Jesus does. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Uh, of course, the question is, who is this woman? And I think the very best answer is, she is the church of all ages. She represents the people of God. She is robed with the sun. In other words, she's bathed in light. Uh, the light of life. She's robed with the, the light and the glory of Christ, who is the son of righteousness. Remember back in chapter one, when we saw Jesus as he is. He is brilliant with light. 
She, the moon is under her feet. She's, uh, the moon reflects the glory of the sun, doesn't it? The, the, only, um, the only radiance the sun has is a reflected radiance. The only radiance the church has is the reflected radiance of Jesus Christ. She has 12 stars in her crown. Again, thinking of the uh, 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of the New Testament church, standing for the people of God of all ages. What's important to see then is that this woman um, is in labor. She's about to give birth. And the devil is standing to devour the child. Uh, the, the, the people of God here are represented as, in some sense, the mother of the Christ. Remember, God had promised to his people that he would give to them a Messiah, a Savior, a King. And one glorious evening in the little town of Bethlehem, that promise came to its fulfillment as the Virgin Mary gave birth to a male child. And we're told the nature of this child, he is one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is directly out of the messianic promise uh, found in Psalm 2. I have, I have established my king. And, and Psalm 2, if you remember, is a psalm of conflict. Wherefore do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed? The one who sits in heaven laughs and says, right, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. It's in the context of conflict, and, and, and John pulls right from Psalm 2, this is the one who was to be born to the woman. We tend to think of, of Christmas night as just this bucolic scene of calm. I mean, the cows are there chewing their cud, and, and the sheep, and the, uh, it's just silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. And yet, here we see in Revelation chapter 12 that it is a scene of, dram of dramatic spiritual um, drama as a great red dragon is standing before the woman so that when she gives birth it might devour the child it's a very graphic dramatic scene this this great dragon it's it, this is not a fairy tale creature uh, he's identified in verse 9 as satan the devil um, his tail, we're told, swept down a third of the stars from heaven. In other words, when the, the devil fell in his rebellion against God, many, many angels, legion, followed him. Uh, there are demons in the world. And uh, the, the passion of this great red dragon is to destroy Christ. That's what he lives to do. It's what he wants more than anything. All through the history of the Old Testament and, and, and the New, you, you find the evidences of his attempts to destroy the Christ by, by seeking to destroy the woman. He, um, you, way back when Cain murders Abel, it's the devil at work, seeking to wipe out the line of Christ. Uh, when you have Pharaoh uh, commanding that all the babies, the male babies of Israel, are to be thrown into the Nile and killed, it's the, it's the devil at work seeking to destroy the woman. When, when Jesus is born and King Herod commands all the babies two years and younger who were born in Bethlehem to be killed, and they were, it's the devil at work to destroy the woman and the Christ child. 
And so you have story after story in the Bible. You could go, just go through them. Devil at work, devil at work, devil at work. But here we're told and reminded he fails. Absolutely fails. He loses. He fails to kill the Christ child. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God in his throne. And in that one little phrase, you have the whole ministry of Jesus. Born, caught up to God, enthroned. It's just very quickly reminding us that Jesus Christ did come into the world and accomplished all that he came to do and then ascended with power and glory and authority at his uh, command and now is seated on the throne of heaven. So he, the devil failed miserably to, to accomplish his will regarding Christ, but he also failed concerning the woman. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God where she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Remember last week we noted the, the 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, which we find here later in the text, time, times, and half a time. Time, times, two, and a half a time. That's three and a half years. It's all the same period of time. And the story is that God has uh, brought the woman to a place of safety in the wilderness, exactly like Israel of old coming out of Egypt. God brings them into the wilderness and, and protects them and provides for them there, and, she, and, and, and she's kept safe. And, and we're told that the exact same thing is true of the church here. And so the devil has failed. Uh, from the pers- this is the vision from the perspective of earth, and now verse 7, the vision from the perspective of heaven. And here we have Michael, uh, a great warrior angel. We're not told much about Michael. He shows up in Daniel, uh, again, as a great warrior. And um, here we're, we, we see Michael fighting with the devil, and, and the devil is defeated, And he and his fallen angels are cast down to earth. There's a victory in this war. And that leads to great rejoicing in heaven, but a warning for the earth. Verse 12, rejoice, O heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the devil's been cast to this earth. And uh, he knows he's lost, he, um, he's failed, he's been defeated, he knows that his time is short, the abyss looms, the fire of uh, the lake of fire where he's going to be cast, the devil knows these things. But instead of surrendering and submitting because of the evil that he is, he now in his fury makes war on the rest of her offspring, verse 17, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Evil cannot rest. When Hitler knew he was being defeated, he did not let up on his attacks. He did not let up on his murdering of innocent people, the Jews. He intensified his attacks. He became more vicious, more cruel, more demonic. Evil cannot rest. Well, Jesus, in these visions, he's talking to us. As I'm studying this again, I'm just realizing this, these are not just portraits we're to look at and admire and say, wow, that, that's, that's really, that's impressive. That's gripping. Interesting. 
This is Jesus speaking to his church. He wants his church to understand our context. We are in the midst of a great cosmic conflict. We are in a battle with the prince of this dark world and the principalities and powers of this evil age. We really are the focus of the devil's fury. It's, it's not hyperbole. It's not um, just sort of spiritualizing something. It's, it's true. There's a devil who hates you. He is furious at what God has done for you and has planned for you. And, and in his fury and hatred, he is committed to exercising all of his demonic power to wounding and destroying you, the bride of Christ. It's not hyperbole. This is the way it is. And there should be an appropriate soberness then about us. Not fear, not shrinking back, but a soberness. In, in 100, 200, 300, 400 years from now, if, if, if Christ does not return, when, when the church looks back on the era of the American church, can we just be honest and, and, and acknowledge that they will not say that was a sober bunch of people. They were serious about ultimate eternal realities. You look at the Puritans, right? And you say, now that's, that's a serious bunch. Very serious. Maybe overly serious, right? Some would charge. It's not the charge that we'll receive. As a, as a, I'm talking broadly speaking. It's because we've, we've, we're, we're not really awake to, as a, as, a, as a church, broadly speaking, these realities. The devil wants to destroy you. He, 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 he's committed to destroying you. He wants your children. He wants to destroy the church. And Jesus wants us to be aware and to wake up and to know our enemy. And so Jesus tells us the devil's tools, what the devil uses to, to work his demonic power in the world. There, there are two things mentioned in the text, the, the, tool of, the weapon of deception and the weapon of accusation. Notice, he's called the deceiver of the whole world, 12 and 9, verse, 12, uh, verse 9 of chapter 12. He's the deceiver. How does he come to Eve? He doesn't threaten her. He doesn't hold a gun to her head. He speaks what seem to be wise words. He seems to be on her side. He seems to be interested in her flourishing, in her good, her joy. And, and then in his, in his kindness, he points to the fruit, and, and, it, and it is good-looking fruit. And he asks Eve to observe the good-looking fruit and to consider the good benefits that would come from eating the fruit. And the woman was deceived. She believed what he was saying. We're going to see in chapter 13 that the, the, the beast from the earth, who is in chapter uh, 19 called the false prophet, that he works his power through deception. He looks like a lamb and talks like a dragon. We'll look at that, Lord willing, two weeks from now. And so the, 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 the devil, you see, deceives Eve, 
convincing her that God is opposed to her ultimate happiness and joy. And it's exactly what he's doing for every person born since. Isn't it amazing? Every person born has this twisted, bent conviction that the living God is the enemy of our joy. And that life will be found in following our desires, our passions, and doing it our way. We're convinced of this from birth. No one had to teach it to us. We've been deceived. In verse 15, we see that the devil tries to sweep the church away with a flood of deception. That's the point. Uh, the, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth. Uh, Dennis Johnson just says in, in, in his commentary that in, in Revelation, what proceeds from the mouth symbolizes words and their power. Jesus has a sword, right, we're told, coming from his mouth. It symbolizes the power of the words of Christ. Well, here the devil has a flood of deceptive words coming from his mouth. And they are very effective. The whole world is deceived. Not just tempted, but deceived. They, the world as a whole, dwellers on earth, believe the lie. We're going to see that again as we come to chapter 13. But just pay attention. That's how, so when, when you see what the world is saying in those magazine articles, in the television shows, in the music... In, in what the world lauds and applauds. Pay attention. You are being lied to. You're being lied to. On purpose. Wake up, church. We're not in a morally neutral cosmos or a morally neutral culture. It's not morally neutral. Jesus wants us to see what the devil's about. Secondly, he's an accuser. He's the accuser of our brothers, we're told. I have a vivid example. I don't have time to read this, but maybe today you could go read the story in Zechariah chapter 3, where the, uh, Joshua the high priest, Zechariah has a, a vision, and he sees Joshua the high priest, the most holy man in Israel, and he's covered in dirty rags, and the devil is standing at his right side, accusing him before the Lord. That's what he does. The devil is a prosecuting attorney, accusing God's people of sin. And it isn't a hard job, right? The devil knows the law of God. He knows the character of God, and he knows you. He knows me. He knows what, 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 we, what we do. He knows what you're watching on your phone or your, your, your computer. He knows what, what the, the lusts of your heart, the pride. He, he knows you knows where you go, what you say. So it's not difficult for the devil to, to, to point to you and to point to God's law and say, uh, living God, these things do not match up. And you say in your law, the soul that sins shall surely die. That's what he does. And in the story of Zechariah 3, God doesn't rebuke the devil because he's wrong. He's right. <laughs> Joshua is, is a filthy sinner. What he rebukes him for is that he's only telling part of the truth. Joshua is not just a sinner. Joshua is a redeemed, ransom child of God. And, and so God proves that point by commanding uh, someone to come and bring robes, uh, clean robes of righteousness to put on Joshua, the sinful high priest. You see, the, the devil will speak the truth, but never the whole truth. 
When he comes to you and convicts you of sin, it's true, you have sinned, but he's not telling the whole truth. Jesus Christ died for sinners. The devil will never tell you that. We have to equip ourselves. When the devil comes and says, yeah, but, but you're ungodly. You say, well, I know I'm ungodly. But my Bible says that God justifies the ungodly. But you are a great sinner. I know I'm a great sinner. But this is a trustworthy saying and, full, and worthy of full acceptance. Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am chief. See, there's good news here that Jesus wants us to hear. The great accuser loses. He's been thrown out of heaven. In other words, he's been, uh, he's been barred from practicing law in the courts of heaven. He, he's no longer uh, allowed to bring his case, um, his accusations against you before the Lord. Uh, he's, the, the whole thing has been thrown out. His case has been thrown out, again, not because of a legal technicality, but because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on that cross, bearing our sins in his body on that tree, when Jesus Christ rose to life, producing the righteousness that could be given freely to sinners, you see, the devil lost his ability to accuse Our sins have been pardoned. God has been just in in bringing judgment against our sin in Jesus, and he's the justifier of the ungodly. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so the divine sentence of God has been handed down in your case, innocent of all charges. And you take that and you hold that up before the devil. When he accuses you, and he's right, but he's dead wrong. Jesus Christ took the law that was written against me and all the the claims of that law and the accusations of God's law and he nailed it to the cross because he paid for it all. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that, that's, that is the great news of, of Revelation chapter 12. I love, I, I believe it was John Newton, well might the great accuser roar of sins that I have done. Uh, I know them all in thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Not, not a single one. The devil's been thrown out of the court of heaven. He can never accuse you there again. But he will continue to accuse you on earth. Uh, you'll, you'll hear accusations against the church from every corner. The early church was accused of being cannibals. You know why? Uh, because they ate the body and the blood of Jesus Christ at the Lord's Supper. And the world said, those people are sick. They were accused of being incestuous. You know why? Because they, 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 they married their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just, it's just debased. They were accused by Nero of burning down Rome, though Nero knew very well who burned down Rome, but it worked very effectively and, they, and allowed him to persecute the church mercilessly. Totalitarian rulers throughout the history of the world have accused the church of being a threat to the stability of society. The progressive left today accuses the church of of being bigots and enemies of human flourishing. You'll hear the accusations over and over and over and over again. And you may know what's happening. The devil is continuing on earth his ministry of accusation against the church. But remember what Jesus says. Matthew 5.11, blessed are you. Blessed are you 
when others revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. If you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to be falsely accused by the world of things you do not hold to, things you do not believe, things that you do not, are, are, are not pursuing. You will be accused. Blessed are you. But just know what's going on. What, what, what's the grand point of this chapter? Why is Jesus, as we wrap up, telling us these things? Let's just, let me just hit a few. He, he wants the church to know there really is a devil. He really does hate you. He really is furious. Um, and he's going to do everything he can to destroy you. He's powerful. He's incredibly effective. The whole world follows him. I think... It, it helps us to realize that, that uh, we need to wake up. We're, you know, remember Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware of the devil's schemes. If, again, the American church is, I think, profoundly unaware of the devil's schemes. I think we often assume that because we're not experiencing persecution, we're not the focus of the devil's attack, or he's not really active in our day, in our, in our presence, our context. But we forget, as we're, as we're going to see in chapter 13, the devil's most effective weapon against the church has never been persecution. That's plan B. Plan A is deception. Plan A is false teachers and false teaching, false beliefs, things that we just sort of assume and take as truth when it's not truth. We're not safe here in West Michigan. This isn't say a safe place to be a Christian. The devil doesn't know boundaries or borders. Jesus wants us to wake up. Secondly, Jesus wants us to know that he's won. The devil's a defeated foe. Verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. These are, these are wonderful words, that, words that define our reality. The salvation of God has come, present tense, has come means that your life is not directed by the will of the devil or by your own weakness, the truth of your sin. It's directed by the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ. The salvation of Jesus has come. The power of Jesus has come. The power that directs and guards and guides and empowers you and I for gospel mission is the omnipotent power of God. The kingdom of God, Paul says, is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power, spiritual power, God's power. It has come. We're not helpless. We're not, we're not as the people of God, uh, unequipped. We have the power of God. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come because the king has come and his reign is over all, though all do not yet acknowledge it. And we are now in this world, the world that belongs to Christ, to proclaim this message that the king has come and calling people to honor him. That's what we, that's what we do. The kingdom is here. The authority of Christ has come. The devil has no authority the, the, the nations of this world don't have ultimate authority over us. Jesus says, all authority and power has been given to me. All authority and power. And, which means that the 
principles that direct our lives. Again, are, are not the world's principles. It's not, our own, it's not our own weakness. The principles and powers that direct our lives are that of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ, our King. Jesus wants us to know he rules, he reigns, it's real. And we conquer in him. Verse 11, one of the most beautiful verses, I think, in the, in the book. They have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they have not loved their lives even unto death. Who has conquered? Who are the they? You are the they. You, the church of God, the saints of God, you have conquered the devil in Christ. How? Well, first, by the blood of the lamb. The blood of the lamb, you see, is, the, is our answer to the devil's accusations. The objective reality of the blood of Christ, the objective reality of the blood of Christ shed on that cross is the objective reality of our victory over the devil by faith in Christ. As you confess your sin, as you acknowledge Jesus Christ as King, as Lord, as Savior of sinners like you, as you cast yourself on that, you are rescued. You are, are brought out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of light. You, with all your history, your sin, your failure, you are ransomed and, and robed in righteousness. And in Christ, you are more than conquerors then. So by the blood of the lamb, we, 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 we conquer the accusations of the devil. And by the word of, the test, of their testimony, they conquered the deception of the devil. We stand against the devil's lives by speaking all the truth concerning Christ and his kingdom and his accomplishments on our behalf. We speak the truth. That was the, the apostles' weapon. That was the early church's mighty uh, weapon as they engage the culture of their day. That's been the weapon in the hand of the faithful church throughout the ages. Just their testimony. Not their testimony about what they've done and, and, and uh, what they've accomplished. It's it, the testimony of the church is the testimony of Jesus. This is who he is. This is why he came. This is why it matters. This is what he's done for sinners. And that is the power that destroys the devil's kingdom. The gates of hell cannot stand against the power of gospel truth spoken from the lips of forgiven sinners who love Jesus more than they love their own life. People who are, are able to say with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven by God, the same God who is guarding us until we receive it. That's the testimony. I love that phrase, they love not their lives unto death, even unto death. What did they love? They loved Jesus. They loved Jesus, who gave his life for them. I was going to close this message today by giving a story, a stirring uh, story of uh, some martyr in the past, and there are thousands to choose from. And... Um, and I'd recommend you to, to read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read, read stories of great Christians who've died for Christ. But the point in, in our text, and I'm going to close with this. 
The point of this text is not to direct our attention towards great saints who made that great sacrifice. Jesus is not, is not asking us here to marvel at other people who conquered and loved not their lives unto death. Jesus' point is to make us those people. His, his goal is to, to, to make us into these kinds of people who, who believe and testify and love and die this way, conquering. And so, and so let me end with this. Is the salvation of Jesus Christ and the grace of God that flows to sinners through him, is it sufficient for you? Is it sufficient for your sin? Is it, is it enough for your forgiveness? Enough for your righteousness? Is it enough for your victory over the devil? Is the salvation of Jesus sufficient for you? And if it is, then let's believe it. Let's, let's, let's really, truly accept it and receive it and embrace it and believe it. Jesus died for me. And that's changed everything. Is the power of Christ Jesus sufficient for your weakness? Is Jesus able to keep you from falling? Is he able to present you without spot and with great joy before the presence of his God in heaven? Is the power of Christ enough, sufficient to sanctify you to resurrect you, to glorify you? Is it enough for your needs and your weakness and your insufficiency? Well, then let's trust it. Let's actually trust ourselves in all of our weakness and all of our failings. Let's trust ourselves in the context and circumstances of our daily life. Let's actually trust the power of Jesus. Is the kingdom of God majestic enough for our devotion and hunger and eager expectation? Is that, is that holy city grand and glorious enough for you to make a pilgrimage to it? Is it enough for you to long with eager expectation for, for all the glory of God to be revealed and for the reign of Christ to be, to be manifested in all of its fullness? Is it, is it beautiful enough and compelling enough so that you are able to wait for it with steadfast endurance? If it is, then let's, let's do that. Let's, let's realize this world is, is not what we're ultimately created for, and, and the satisfactions we most deeply long for are not going to be found here. They're going to be found there, and then let's set our face to that city. Is the sovereign authority of King Jesus compelling? Is he trustworthy to do what he's promised to do? Is he wise in his commands? Is he faithful to his word and to his own? Then let's obey him. Let's submit to him in the truth of our life with gladness, with faith, with joy. Because you see, as, as, as we respond to the truth in those ways, that's how we become people who overcome the devil by the blood of Christ, 
by the word of our testimony, the truth about Christ. We become great saints, you see, by just believing in his salvation and trusting in his power and longing for his appearing and submitting to his authority all by his grace until he comes again. May God grant it. Amen. God in heaven, um, we, we humble ourselves before you. We thank you for King Jesus who reigns, who knows us. Lord, our lives are, in our eyes, a confused mess at times, and yet in your eyes you are building something beautiful for your glory. As you, as you bind us together as a church, as you, Lord, lead us into the riches that Christ has purchased for us, Lord, you know us, and I thank you so much that the gospel is for us. Give us, the, Lord, the ability uh, to believe it and to trust, to happily submit, to patiently wait. But, oh God, may we pursue these things because we've seen the truth. And we look forward, Lord Jesus, to these truths one day exploding in all their full glory in our sight. On that last day, Lord Jesus, come soon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's respond with our confession of faith as we sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, the great high priest who pleads for me. Let's stand together and sing.
people said, amen. Receive the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father be with you all. Amen.